And I think anyone who's lucky enough to be a founder who's succeeding has to at some point evolve from founder to CEO. Because founders tend to not be great CEOs. And then it's the endurance of their companies that requires them to grow into the CEO role. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. All right, y'all have been amazing. You've been listening to me now on this podcast for almost five years, but now I wanna hear a little bit more from you. I'm doing everything I can to make this show better. And so if you would take a survey that you can either find in the show notes or at thefortpod.com backslash survey, I'd be incredibly grateful. I wanna know more about who you are, what industry you're in, what position you're in, what are the things that you like, but I also want to know what you love about the podcast, what you hope to see more of in the future, different guests I can have on, different topics I can speak about, all this so that I can make the podcast better, and you filling out that survey helps me do that. So again, if you can go to the show notes and click that link or go to thefortpod.com backslash survey, I'd be extremely appreciative. And at the end of next month, I'm going to pick one winner for a cash prize for those who fill it out. Zeal is the trusted EV charging provider for large multifamily groups like Graystar, Lincoln Property Company, Harrison Street, NRP Group, UBS Asset Management, Stoneweg, Camden Property Trust, and more. In Texas specifically, they are the EV charging partner for large groups such as JPI, Embry Development, Valiant Residential, Hillwood, Toll Brothers, and more. If the future is going to be electric, it's going to be the landlords at sea around the corner to deliver the most reliable and plentiful charging experience. Reach out to Zeal Energy to find out about how you can add electric charging stations to your multifamily and office properties. Zeal Energy is spelled X-E-A-L. And to get a free site evaluation from them, contact Eric Roseman at Eric at zealenergy.com and mention the Fort Podcast for a free evaluation. I just pinch myself when I think about what Fort Capital's done over the last few years. We're based in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have a track record that has already transacted on over $2 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Our team is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between 15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Chris, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm going to start in the deep end today. You mind? I love the deep end. You wrote a tweet in May of 2022 about your ghost story. Let's start there. What is your ghost? So my ghost is the diagnosis of bipolar disorder that I received when I was 20 and was in denial of for 16 years. And so I got a chance to unpack that story, the intersection of being an entrepreneur and having a mood disorder, one that's characterized as a severe mental illness, which really I faced a reckoning in 2016 when I was hospitalized for a second time with the diagnosis that I received in 2000 when I was a senior in college and went through living hell for the next year and somehow got through it. And I shouldn't say somehow because I know how, 
medication, a great doctor, an unbelievably loving now wife and supportive family. And so as I processed what had happened, I started to feel like I wanted to expunge the shame that I'd felt for so long from having a mental illness, something that affects so many families, maybe all families, you know, have a story somewhere. So that was the ghost. And I decided it was time to to bring it out of the shadows and say, hey, here's what I've dealt with. Here's how I've tried to overcome it and, you know, give folks at least one additional story out there to be aware of as they as we all go through the tough stuff in life. How did you know that you had it? Was it something that happened? Was it a pattern that people were starting to notice? Like what was the tipping point where you finally, they kind of said you had it and then you acknowledged that you had it? There were two moments. There was the moment I was diagnosed. And for many of you who aren't familiar, you know, bipolar disorder is a disorder of mood. It doesn't mean that you're only high or only low. It just means that you're capable of greater extremes on the high side and the low side. So for bipolar one on the low side, the depression that you experience can become so severe that the suicide attempt rate for bipolar one is 60% at some point in one's life. And the suicide rate from the best available data is 19%. So one of the reasons why one rejects this illness, which is so frequently diagnosed between 18 and 25 is, you know, what person at the peak of their powers in feeling invincible, which are people in their early 20s, wants to learn that statistically there's a one in five chance that they might end their own life. And then on the high side, which is psychosis, mania, messianic delusions, elevated speech, grandiosity, irritability, distractibility, rapid cycling of moods. Basically, people who have lost their mind. Who wants to know that that could happen again? And what you're told is this could come back at any point. It might be two weeks or it might be 20 years. And in my case, it was 16 years. And so I I felt like I had a bomb in my brain that could go off in terms of mania. And then I was aware that I could get so depressed that I might end my own life. So what I did with that information was I chose to reject the diagnosis. I refused therapy. I refused treatment. I went off my medication, an all too common story. And I just buried this deep down so much so that most of the time I wasn't even aware that this had happened. It would be like once every couple months, I would have this rising panic and I would remember this thing and that I would push it back down. And so it wasn't until during kind of the the heyday of building a startup, of building this this e-commerce business Bonobos, was the first time that I started to sink into depression. And I would have periods of time where I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to work. I didn't want to live. And that's a hard place to be if as any human being. And certainly if you're supposed to, you know, lead a team and inspire others. So that was when I started to be like, well, wait a second, this whole manic depressive diagnosis, maybe that was a thing. And then in 2016, it just came back with a vengeance. And I had a second psychotic episode, spent the week at the psychiatric emergency room and then the psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital in New York City with psychosis, with mania, with messianic delusion. And coming out of that, Now it was like, okay, no doubt about it. This is what I have. 
I've been in denial of it for 16 years and it's time to just wake up and deal with this. And I was also 36 years old. I had 400 employees. I had changed a lot. I'd grown up. The world had evolved. And most importantly, everyone rallied around me and was clear-eyed about it. I moved into a hotel with my mom and she found me a psychiatrist. My wife, my now wife, who I couldn't see for a week due to an episode of violence that happened during the mania, stood by me even as I went through the legal system on that. My management team at Bonobos rallied around me. The board said, we back you. This isn't uncommon. And in fact, the data shows that bipolar disorder affects somewhere around 4% of the general population and that it probably indexes seven to one in entrepreneurs, according to a study from the University of California, San Francisco. So that's one in five entrepreneurs who might be dealing with a mood disorder. To say nothing of other forms of neurodiversity that over-index in entrepreneurs, anxiety, panic, unipolar depression, addiction, the autism spectrum. So in a way, we already know entrepreneurs deal with these issues. Let's talk about it. Let's bring it into the light so that we can take care of ourselves and each other. Real quick before we, uh, and my next point was going to lead to entrepreneurs and where some of these characteristics tend to show up more. But when you're going through this, is it a pure chemical imbalance or is there something that was triggering you or was it just a certain level of stress finally puts you into a state of mind that you can't control? Yes. <laughs> my, my psychiatrist, Dr. Z, has a way of saying that everything is overdetermined, that we as human beings, we seek these singular narratives that help us understand the past so that we can make sense of the present. And the truth is there's probably multiple vectors that are informing something as complicated as bipolar disorder. For me, there was definitely something new that happened three weeks before I had my episode, which is I used psilocybin mushrooms for the first time in my life. It was the same year that I was using MDMA ecstasy for the first time in my life. I was a senior in college who was drinking a lot and smoking a lot of pot as well. And from what my doctor says, any of those things can interact with mental illness in a way that we may not understand exactly how, but it can be a part of the sauce, you know, the mole <laughs> that is coming together that perhaps takes, and here's where I'm just venturing a field. Yeah. Uh, as a citizen, not as a physician or a scientist, <laughs> but that potentially can interact with the underlying mood disorder and bring it to the surface. And then there were two things happening in my personal life. I'd fallen in love for the first time, which it creates its own kind of euphoria, even without mania. And I also had this like gothic conflict with my dad going on. I had been charged with a misdemeanor possession of a fake ID, <laughs> which isn't the end of the world, but my dad <laughs> took it really hard. And it was the first time in my life that my dad was so disappointed in me. And I felt that and it was just crushing. And I also felt angry at him that he was taking such a puritanical view of something that I felt like was like, you know, de rigueur for a college junior, college senior. So when we look at it in love for the first time, the euphoria from that, the euphoria from you know the sexual relationship that has got its own set of endorphins going, 
to drug use, conflict with dad, senior in college, a lot of marijuana and alcohol. That was all in the stew. I guess I've now used stew, sauce, and mole as analogies that may have contributed to this eruption of psychosis, the manic episode that resulted in the diagnosis of bipolar one. It's interesting you say some of those things. I've I've been in those shoes, not to experience the bipolar, but done a lot of the things that you've done at certain times in my life when you were doing them. And the more I've talked to entrepreneurs, which, you know, I I have a business as well, and I hear you and I've talked to hundreds of founders. And what you find is a lot of this is a common thread amongst people that start businesses or take big swings and take big risks. So let's unpack that a little bit. What about somebody that is bipolar also makes them in a lot of re- respects, an amazing entrepreneur or the ability to lead and set vision and, and build teams when you might hear of bipolar and say that nobody could ever do that. It's bipolar. And it turns out, like you just said, seven and one or one and seven, however you said it, are doing that. Chris, is what you were telling me that you're on mushrooms right now when you said at times in your life? <laughs> just kidding. So you said something, though, that I want to benevolently correct, which is you said that being bipolar, and I want to make the distinction that no one is bipolar. We only have it. Okay. And it's a funny thing we do in society. By the way, this is not you. This is everyone. This is me for so long. I still have to correct myself. We say Andy is bipolar. The analogy is Andy is cancer. The analogy is Andy is diabetes. Mm. Luckily, I don't have cancer or diabetes. But the point is, is that we would never equate a physical medical ailment with someone's very identity. With mental illness, we say someone is bipolar. So we're basically making your illness your identity. Mm. And just think about how messed up that is. Yep. Because- Bipolar disorder is scary enough without being it. <laughs> like it's scary enough having it. And it's part of why it's so stigmatized is that it takes on this gothic quality that this person is this unstable thing when the truth is that it's an eminently treatable illness with medication and therapy, I would argue you might be able to access more stability than someone who doesn't have bipolar disorder because there's phenomenal medications and because therapy is wonderful and I think should be required for everyone at some point in their life. So back to your question, there's a state in bipolar disorder called hypomania and it is the antecedent to mania. It precedes it. So if mania is you're on fire, you know, you're a 10 out of 10, you're God or you're a superhero, you're off the rails, you're ranting and raving about whatever, To you're going to save humanity, you're going to bring peace on earth. Hypomania is like seven or eight out of 10, let's call it eight. And the characteristics are the flight of ideas, a sense that everything happens for a reason, not necessarily a messianic delusion, but a grandiosity a sense of self-importance, maybe an exaggerated narcissism, maybe a little bit more irritability or distractibility, decreased need for sleep, an increase in high-risk activities that are pleasure-seeking, financial risk-taking, sexual risk-taking, flawed judgment, 
these are more or less the central casting traits of an entrepreneur having a good day. Right? <laughs> I was going to say this everything. Is, this is what we <laughs> so expect <true>. our entrepreneurs <laughs> to show up with. And it leads to you know delusion that goes too far. All you have to do is turn on the news and look at people whose delusions were not checked by reality. And some of these folks end up in jail. Some of these folks end up being claimed by suicide. I've gotten a chance to invest in an entrepreneur, a wonderful bright light who ended up, you know, ending his own life. This is all too common. You know, it's all too common as human beings, you know, that there are so many forms of neurodiversity that we don't talk about. And almost every single form from what I've learned from the University of California at San Francisco and what any of us who know creative types, artists, founders, entrepreneurs, it's intuitive that we know and expect a certain level of quote unquote crazy. And Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple, ran a campaign. What was it called? Here's to the crazy ones. And so we even celebrate it and lionize it. And so what we need to figure out is how to acknowledge it, to understand that there are these formidable strengths, these superpowers, but they all come with shadows. It, they all come with kryptonite. And the shadows being, like you said, the how low you can go. The highs are the highs, but it's the downside of this is, is the lows. Is that correct? Well, I think it's for bipolar disorder, there's three problems. There is mania if you have bipolar one where you can lose your mind, which is pretty dangerous. Anything can happen. In my case, an episode of violence where I harmed two people that I love. I think without great lawyers, without being you know white or half white, without understanding people around me who experienced the violence, I could be in a federal penitentiary right now. I was charged with felony assault of a senior citizen. Maybe if I was in a different geography in the country, we wouldn't be doing this podcast because I would be yet another incarcerated person who has mental illness and who doesn't have the the privilege of being able to mount their own defense. So mania is scary. It's horrifying. Terrible things can happen. Then you have depression, which we talked about. Either losing your life to depression, or I would argue equally bad, not wanting to be alive, but being alive. And then hypomania, which we talked about, which has a lot of productive attributes, but which can produce its own errors of judgment sexual indiscretion, financial ruin, taking something, let's say you're a startup entrepreneur that's rising and figuring out how to crash it. Mm -hmm. And we see those stories, right? The high-flying Icarus-like entrepreneurs who it looks great and then it crashes. And you know, all I have to do is turn on the news or Netflix to see those stories. So there's a lot of costliness and that's just bipolar disorder. Let's look at another source of neurodiversity, which is autism, right? Elon Musk has disclosed, at least on Saturday Night Live, that he has autism. A high-functioning version of autism is called Asperger's. And one of the symptoms of autism is a deficit of empathy. Well, you come into Twitter on week one and you lay off 4,000 people. In a way, a superpower, because emotions get in the way of capitalism sometimes, sadly. That's why some of the most successful capitalists who've ever lived have been some of the least empathetic folks mm, ever. Interesting. And so 
there is a harm that comes from other kinds of neurodiversity, which might enable you to excel at what you do, but at what cost to yourself and others. And I think that's the conversation that we need to start having, which is like, at what price innovation, at what price creative brilliance, whatever we want to call it. And how do we hold ourselves accountable to showing up as good human beings, which part of which has to be confronting these demons and shadows that we have. You think that's why he's capable of dreaming so big and going to Mars and, you know, a guy like that, like everybody knows Elon can have dreams that are so large that you almost have to think, man, you almost have to be a narcissist to think that you're possible. It's possible to do that. Is that why he's able to have these dreams is because he has some of this disorder, which we could say in this regard could be a positive thing. But is that why he's able to dream on the magnitude and scale that he is? A hundred percent. I think anyone who's starting something and that wants to build something that's never existed has to over-index on magical thinking. You know, it's only vision in retrospect. At the time, it's delusional. (laughs) And they have to, we have to over-index on narcissism because why why you? Of all the people on the planet, you're the one that's going to go do that. And so, you know, narcissistic personality disorder, which is narcissism taken to the extreme, I, you know, I like to joke inappropriately that that might be a hundred percent of entrepreneurs. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's almost a prerequisite to trying. Yep. A level of delusional self-belief. And maybe last thought on this, are you born with it or is this something you're nurtured by how you're raised or is this a something that's genetic from birth or is this yeah like something that's nurtured over time or both yeah i think both is a good answer right and i think there is some genetic heritability that folks have discovered for certain forms of neurodiversity i i think there's data on that i think there's data on that for bipolar there's data on that for depression there's data on that for suicide there's data on that for autism there's data on that for schizophrenia in that regard not so dissimilar from a history of diabetes in the family a history of breast cancer in the family so that's definitely a thing and then i would imagine there are things that are exogenous factors that can promote it, right? We know that there are certain childhood experiences that make one more likely to have something like a borderline personality. Frequently, that's being abandoned as an infant by at least one person. That's in the diagnostic, the expected factors that might lead to the diagnosis later. We know that ending one's life can be influenced by adverse effects. And I think if we rerun the play of, you know, my college episode, I'd be curious, like, what if we stripped out? What if I was a teetotaler? What if I'd never done mushrooms? What if I wasn't smoking pot every day? What if I wasn't a functional collegiate alcoholic? Maybe then the conflict with dad and the first love would have led to some variance in mood, but maybe it wouldn't have teetered off the rails you know, into mania. I'll never know. But I think the answer is we are born this way in some regard with a lot of this. And we are not destined to deal with these things without being able to work on them or 
control them or try to transcend them. You and I would have had a lot of fun together in college. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we didn't know each other. Maybe we wouldn't be here. No kidding. To kind of bring home on this topic, you've seen the progression of when you were diagnosed to where we are today in 2023. Are we now more socially acceptable of this? Is it becoming something people are more comfortable talking about or is it still being suppressed and kind of looked at, you know, as as something people don't want to admit or they think it could ruin their career or, you know, things of that nature? Like, how has it progressed as far as acceptance? Oh, my gosh, we've come so far and we have so far to go, of course. Focusing on the first part, just look at the last few years with sports and mental health. We have Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, Marty Fish, Naomi Osaka. We have so many pioneers in the sporting world talking about this in a way that's brand new. In the arts, we've kind of come to expect it, right? We kind of almost like our artists crazy, but we've seen some stuff, right, unfolding on a national stage with folks who are probably dealing with different stripes of neurodiversity or who have disclosed it. And then in the business community, as I came forward with this story, I discovered I was nowhere near uh, the pioneer that I hoped I was being. We had the Paul English, the CTO of Kayak, who disclosed a decade ago that he had bipolar disorder. He and I got to sit on a panel with Alicia Keys, who had talked about her issues during COVID with depression. It was moderated by Jane Pauley, who is the storied 60 Minutes anchor now on, I believe, CBS This Morning, who came forward with her diagnosis of bipolar disorder when she was in her early 50s. So the more time I spent, the more I realized that I was standing on the shoulders of giants who had come before me. And one of the great moments was getting to do a Zoom thing with Kay Redfield Jameson, who wrote the kind of OG memoir of manic depressive illness, which is called An Unquiet Mind, and who wrote a textbook, literally, because she's a professor of psychiatry called Manic Depressive Illness. So it's building, and it's snowballing, and it's accelerating, and it's doing so in genres where previously it had been under, there was a the lower level of awareness and disclosure, which is includes sports, and the business community. And in that way, I got to be in front of a group of people at BlackRock, one of the largest financial institutions. We did this talk at BlackRock. And the guy who moderated it, vice chairman, is gay, grew up in a Southern Baptist family, had an uncle who was both gay and who had a mental illness. So that was equated in his family. You know, that, that being gay was a mental illness, which of course was a thing. I think it was actually scientifically described as such in the psychiatric community for a period of time. And he said, what's happening with mental illness now reminds him of what happened with the LGBT movement 30 years ago, which is we started the conversation. Then people started coming out to their families in a new way. They started coming out in the workplace and then watch how that accelerated where we went from, I don't know, five states where you had the freedom of marriage past and then 10 and then 15. And then all of a sudden it became federal law of the land in 2015. Yeah. Right. Barack Obama was against gay marriage in 2008 when he ran. He was on the record. Wow. And then, you know, we saw that slide and now we take it. I don't want to say take it for granted, given what might be going on with the Supreme Court. But, you know, it's pretty ironclad at this point. 
gay marriage equality. I would be I would be shocked if that were overturned in any state, although with an appropriate degree of humility. So I think we're seeing that accelerating force with mental illness. And my sister and I were were driving together. We've been through hell together with my illness. We're in business together. We've got a baby brand called Monica and Andy. So we're, you know, we're tight. And we were in a taxi or whatever, rideshare in New York, and we were going from one thing to another. And she said, I think you did something cool. And I said, what? She's like, I think you made bipolar disorder cool. <laughs> like, it's almost like a badge of honor, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we've seen that with other things. We've seen miscarriages not be talked about. Depression wasn't talked about. And then you get to a place where it seems like the disclosure is you know, happening more and more. And we've got a ways to go, yeah. but I think it's accelerating, which is exciting. I love it. Well, kudos to you for telling your story. And I know that the book that you put out is awesome and just doing podcasts like this and just getting more and more people to listen to it is what brings the problem forward. It's so funny. So many of the characteristics you describe are things I've felt. I know things in the entrepreneurial community, and it's just interesting to hear it from your perspective. Okay. We're going to talk about Bonobos and we're going to move the conversation there. But before we do, one more thing that I, I found in some of my research that I thought was interesting. You said Mark Lore is the best person I've ever worked for. Why? Well, one of the things I didn't say is I've only ever worked for three people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. But I've been around a lot of people who are bosses, who are managers. And Mark's really special on a few dimensions. First, he doesn't ever tell you what to do. His whole philosophy on leadership is that you can't actually tell anyone what to do. Mm. Either they are going to do it themselves or they don't want to do it and they'll do it because they have to. But in neither scenario are you telling them what to do. They're either doing your bidding against their will or they're doing something that they would be doing anyway. And so his philosophy is you have to hire incredible people and then purely delegate to them. And I think that's kind of the foundation of his philosophy. And I think that's super different. The other thing that Mark does that's super unique is he listens incredibly well. So we would be at meetings. Mark would be, you know, the super senior person in the room, executive vice president, CEO of e-commerce at Walmart. And he wouldn't talk. He would just ask questions. And sometimes it would only offer his opinion if asked. And so his words carried more weight because he wasn't the kind of leader that I have been in my career, which is I want to talk and persuade and sell. And in fact, just listened intently, asked great questions and was super judicious with his contributions. You think you can be a startup founder that does just listen and offer very few opinions or do you think that the, the way that you led was a direct correlation to the stage of business that you were in compared to maybe where Mark was at Walmart? I think the mix can shift. And I think anyone who's lucky enough to be a founder who's succeeding has to at some point evolve from founder to CEO. Because founders tend to not be great CEOs. And then it's the endurance of their companies that requires them to grow into the CEO role. I think the starting point of the way you think about an exchange of ideas can start in a much more beautiful place than I started. And where I started was, I have good ideas and I want to figure out how to bring those to light. And then a way that I, I don't want to say ended, but 
what I've tried to evolve towards is great ideas can come from anywhere. How do you create when you've got a big personality almost by definition as a founder, a culture where people feel like they can surface dissenting ideas? Because your job isn't to be the person with the idea, it's to enable the organization to generate ideas such that the best ideas bubble to the top. And so a small example would be calling on someone in the meeting that hasn't said anything. So I've got a new company now and this morning, we were running a meeting and I just noticed who hasn't spoken. And in my mind, it's like, okay, I know Rob hasn't said anything yet. Kanara hasn't said anything yet. Keyshawn hasn't said anything yet. And I'm taking inventory. And then the last 20 minutes of the conversation, I'll say something like, hey, Kanara, what are you thinking about this? And just bring them in. Because the way to create equality at a table in terms of ideas is that everyone gets a chance to participate. And I just didn't used to have that awareness. I wasn't thinking about the person who hasn't spoken. And then there's this really cool thing in life, right? Which is like, sometimes the smartest people are the ones that do the most listening and are the most quiet. And so how do we bring them in, in a conversation? And Mark's boss at Walmart, my boss's boss, Doug McMillan, also a master of this, just didn't talk that much in a meeting asked a lot of questions. And then when he did, you kind of hung on every word. And I, you know, I've heard this about boards of directors as well. Your best board member is the one that asks the best questions and talks the least. Man, I've done 266 of these episodes and every now and again, there's a certain thing we'll touch on that I feel like I'm the, the only student that I just feel like I learned something huge. I'm not the CEO of my company anymore. Haven't been for two years. You said something, founders don't always make good CEOs. This isn't about me, so we won't go into it. But two or three years ago, I was miserable. Company I started when I was 18, I was 34 at the time and I couldn't figure it out. I loved the business, but I was miserable in my role. And like one of the things that you just described, I'm literally hearing you talk about how I used to lead. And I think you just put it really eloquently. And the second thing I would say to that is, there's just like, you know, talking about being bipolar and having, having that bipolar. Yeah, having bipolar. <laughs> We're going to get you there by I, the end well, of the and, podcast. And I've had ADD. I've been told my whole life, you have ADD, you are ADD. And now I've just thought of that as, no, I'm not ADD. I have ADD. It's uh, freeing, isn't it? It's like it freeing to not be the problem. To have a problem is better than to be a problem. Well, as soon as you said you are not you are cancer. That was the light bulb for me is, yeah, we tend to treat mental health as more of a judgment than what it is. But I think the other conversation that I, that as I've discovered of me moving out of CEO is not a lot of CEOs understand that it's okay to not be CEO or it's okay if, if you are a founder to not be CEO or to be, to admit that might not be the best role. So anyway, I just felt like that, that conversation really hit home. A hundred percent. And that, the other thing is nobody cares, right? Like right. <laughs> what people care about is their role enduring, their ability to thrive and grow and the success of the enterprise. They don't actually care that much if the CEO is Chris or who's the CEO now? My partner, Jason. Jason. As long as Jason is at least as good as Chris was, they don't care. And it's this funny thing you do as a founder is like, I know I did anyway. I thought everyone was thinking about me way more than they were. <laughs> and one of the most beautiful things about disclosure of oh, mental man. illness is you realize nobody cares that much 
Yeah. No one's sitting there thinking, oh, Andy has bipolar disorder. This is going to change my life. They're not thinking about that. They're trying to figure out if I'm you know, going to sink the company because I'm not dealing with it. Right. <laughs> and it's this really freeing thing to realize people are thinking about someone else a lot. They're yep. thinking about themselves. And yep. so, with that frame in mind, gosh, is that just like more relaxing to not have to worry about how your issues are impacting other people? If they're not as concerned with it only in so far as it impacts them, then they're going to go back to worrying about themselves and their own lives. And that's how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. The pressure I would put on myself was unbearable. And it's a lot of what you just said. It was just self-inflicted pressure that I felt like probably other people were paying way more attention to me than they were. And that's a little bit of the entrepreneur narcissism that we all have. I'm glad you escaped the CEO role. I was joking with a friend recently who uh, led the last round in my new company. He's done three companies. And I saw him on the day after that he stepped down from his third company and he'd been at it for 10 years. And I just laughed when he told me, he's like, did you see the news yesterday? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, I stepped down, you know, and I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy for you. And he had a big smile on his face. And I, I just asked him, I said, why is it that these things always start with joy and with escape? <laughs> right? <laughs> like it starts from a place of joy and joie de vivre. Yeah. And then at some point it becomes a prison, like by definition. And you can feel trapped. And it's a nice thing to know, hey, there's this thing that you can do. Is a cool HBO show about it. It's called Succession, which is... And by the way, if you want to build something that's going to last for 50 years, you've got to figure out Succession. And so, how do you make that first step? You know, the first Succession work. How do you go from the founder to the next CEO? And so, I'm so pumped for you, Chris, that sounds like two years ago, you figured that out. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, it was a big part of my life. It was a it was a big turning point. All right, let's move to Bonobos for a bit. Rather than get into like how it started, because I think people could go listen to how I built this if you wanted to get the, the full story. I won't we don't have to go through it here. I wanted to kind of start a little further along, which was why did your apparel companies succeed and why do other apparel companies not succeed? Because I feel like it's a low barrier to entry industry. Everybody wants to start an apparel brand. But you were able to do it in something like pants and start there and do it unbelievably well. So like what makes great apparel brands and what makes bad ones? Is that Topo Chico, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> I love Topo Chico. The best. I've got one nearby. I got to grab one after this. <laughs> it's the biggest bubbles in the sparkling water pantheon, isn't it? hundred. So that's a great way to say it. I, I didn't realize that is what it is. Yeah. Maybe that ties into Bonobos. So I think... <laughs> You need to start, in my opinion, a fashion or an apparel brand with a hero item. You've got to start with one item that people love. And only if you get that right, do you earn the right to the collection or the rest of the wardrobe or the outfit or whatever. So whenever I see someone launching a brand with like a collection, I worry because you got to get one thing right and be known for one thing. And so with, you know, Dion von Furstenberg, that was a wrap dress. With Tori Birch, that was a ballet flat. With Ralph Lauren, that was a tie originally, and then a polo shirt. Brands are known for items because customers like to have a shortcut to what am I hiring this brand for? That's how customers shop. We hire brands for a job. 
people who build brands think we're geniuses and we're going to make all these great products and we're going to have a line in the collection. And that's not how companies start. And Paul Graham, who's a startup writer, a startup person, one of the founders of Y Combinator, it's a great tech incubator, has this amazing article called How to Get Startup Ideas. And he talks about how most people think that companies that currently exist started in some way, shape, or form the way that they currently exist. And yet, if you go back in time, generally, there was a hyper-narrow group or wedge of people who needed something really badly that that company had to make really well. And so, Bonobos, I don't even know if it's obvious now, but we started with boot-cut corduroy pants with a curved waistband for guys who grew up playing hockey and soccer and football, who lived in Palo Alto and who were tired of shopping in stores. Like that was our <laughs> wedge. It was super narrow. And it turns out that in Northern California, 21 whale stretch corduroy is awesome because you can wear it when it's 80 degrees in the middle of the day to class and you can keep it on when the temperature plummets to 50 at night. And it turns out that People who go to Stanford Business School, many of them are athletes who played sports growing up, whether they were good, like my co-founder was, or bad, like I am. <laughs> and so, having this athletic cut that fits around your seat and your thighs, but then still has kind of trim fit through the waist, appealed to those folks. And then we had this channel innovation of, you know what, rather than selling in stores, we're going to sell direct. Well, the truth of that is no stores would have taken us, <laughs> right? Like who, you know, you think Barney's or Nordstrom is going to carry a quote unquote fashion line from two idiots at Stanford Business School who are designing colorful corduroy pants. There were all these gatekeepers that decide in the fashion industry who succeeds and who doesn't. GQ magazine, you know, such and such, and such a wholesale Bloomingdale's, we didn't have any of those relationships. We didn't know anything about that. So we were just dumb enough to say, let's just sell them online. Let's sell them on the internet. And it was 2007. It was before Amazon had launched apparel. It was at a time where people assumed that soft goods would not be sold online. And then we were inspired by this guy, Tony Shea from Zappos, who rumor was, was selling $100 million worth of shoes on the internet which is the size, which is something where you feel like you got to try on the sizes of anything. Footwear, you got to try it on, right? Well, no, it turns out if you have free shipping both ways and 365-day returns, turns out you can sell footwear online, right? And now who's the biggest clothing retailer in the country? It's Amazon. They passed Macy's at 16 billion of apparel sales about three years ago and no stopping them now. So it was focus on a hero item, super narrow customer demo, selling to those people out of Trader Joe's grocery bags directly in person, and then a channel innovation of launching on the internet with great customer service. And so we always thought about what we were building, not as a pants brand, but as a menswear experience that was a bundle of great apparel and great customer service. And I can remember when I first pitched an investor, I was on that storied road, sand, you know, Sand Hill Road, talking to a former venture capitalist who is now a professor at Stanford. And I showed him a page in our deck, slide deck, that said pants, shirts, suits, personal care, and it had a timeline. And he said something great. I, I can remember the way he said it where he was sitting and he goes, I don't want to hear about any of that. 
until you're selling $10 million worth of pants. <laughs> okay. and, and he understood that you got to get one thing right. And so that leads to the last factor, which is we had unfair access to capital. Most people who are starting a fashion business, no one wants to give them money for that because they know fashion is hard. It's like starting a restaurant or an airline. You know, who wants to invest in someone starting a fashion business? Yeah. <laughs> and we, because we were coming not from the fashion industry, but coming from consulting in private equity and the world of business school and finance and all that, we were able to persuade people to give us angel checks. And that first 750000 that we raised from mentors and friends and family and colleagues, that's unusual to be able to get that kind of money for, for a clothing company. Did you think about it? And maybe it's more how the customer thought about it. But if I buy a polo shirt, the joke's always the shirt costs a dollar, the polo logo costs $100 or whatever. You really th you're not buying it because it's the most comfortable shirt in the world. You're buying it because it's polo. But with Bonobos, were people buying Bonobos, the brand, or are they buying an amazing product that fits so well it could have been named anything? I think that it's a beautiful question because I think there are a couple ways to approach innovation. There's product-led innovation and there's marketing-led innovation. Mm -hmm. And the polo shirt is an amazing example. So a Ralph Lauren polo, the cost of goods is around four bucks. And that retails at full price, if you're dumb enough to pay full price for it, <laughs> right for 70, 70 to $80. But it turns out that the largest gross profit pool of those polos is buying it in an outlet store for $39. But at $39, at five bucks of cost, that's still an 80% margin. And so how do they do that? Well, they have beautiful mansions in New York City that lose money. They have amazing advertising. And by the way, I think their product is quite good. So you can figure out how to build the vision and the dream and then like monetize it through outlet stores and having really attractive cost of goods sold. I think you can do that, but you've got to be a master at branding and product and multi-stack distribution that includes outlet and that includes partnerships, right? So Ralph Lauren, the company, a lot of the money is made through, you know, sub brands like Chaps at Kohl's and American Living at JCPenney. These brands have changed over time, but that's kind of like the paradox of it is that the money is at the accessible price point stuff that goes mass. The stuff that looks amazing, purple label. I was looking at purple label suits last night. Yeah, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you want to check one out, you're going to a beautiful, you know, 25,000 square foot store in Chicago that has a restaurant. It's this genius creation of the image and then monetizing that image with more accessible stuff that's further and further down the price point chain. If you're starting something from the beginning, it's very unusual that you would be able to cultivate and create that image fast enough to ever even have a shot. So I think for Bonobos, we had to lead with product innovation. I don't think the company would exist if my co-founder hadn't been a genius who figured out that you got to curve the waistband of a men's pant to enable it to fit right through the seat in the thigh. You know, his whole thing was he would buy a size 34 to fit his thighs and then tailor the waist to 32 so it wasn't too big in the waist and wasn't too boxy. And then he was like, screw it, I'm done paying for alterations. I'm just going to make pants that have that cut. And I think then he understood how to make the product its own marketing by doing this great colorful fabric with these peek through liners in the back pocket 
which was like a conversational wink. And that's also key to branding, right? Generally, it's a logo. Tory Burch Ballet Flats cost $2 to make and sell for $200. Why? Because there's a really beautiful gold thing that says, I paid $200 for this. It's a status symbol as well, which is the brand icon. But I think it probably was a comfortable shoe as well. So I think it's both. I think the great brands are great at both product and marketing. Let's take Nike. But at the beginning, how did Phil Knight talk about getting Nike going? Because he innovated with this running coach from the University of Oregon, and they actually built a shoe that was great for runners. So there's no getting around that at the beginning. Yes. So I think you probably just answered this question. You can start as a product and evolve over a long enough period to being a branding play. If you hang around long enough, you kind of earn your right to be able to brand like a Polo or a Chanel or a Tory Burch, but you can't really start that way. I think that's true. And I think part of it depends on whether the brand is bootstrapped or funded. So I think if you're bootstrapping it, the ability to spend money on marketing comes later because you need to fund your marketing with operating profit. If you're able to raise outside money, then you can actually market the heck out of your brand before you've earned the right. And for my part, I don't actually think that's healthy. (laughs) I pioneered that model and I think it's a bad idea because it's better to take longer and do it in a way where you know the product justifies the marketing investment. It's better to own more of your company than to take all the dilution from these investors. And it's best to not pretend like a retail company is a technology company. So I think that's, I wish I could go back to 2007 and tell myself that. You started in 2007 doing e-commerce. So we'll call you early. Now we're in 2023 and that's been 16 years to play out. And a lot of the conversation, it seems to be, is that retail's not dead. A lot of these e-com brands are actually wanting storefront locations, maybe used differently than they would have been 15 years ago. But what is your kind of thought on where we stand with e-com today, 16 years later, as it relates to retail? Like how have you, what's your opinion on that today? Yeah, this is one of the best weeks if not the best in the history of a company that I chair called Monica and Andy, a baby organic apparel brand that my sister started seven years ago. And the reason is we've spent seven years trying to go direct to consumer to the moon with our own e-commerce, with our own stores. And this week we launched at Walmart. We kind of warmed up by launching at Bye Bye Baby and then Target. We just launched a huge partnership at Walmart, over a thousand doors. And it's so exciting because now we can take the brand to so many more people. And rather than giving money to Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who control Facebook and Instagram and Google search, which by the way, extract more rents than any landlord ever did, we invented digital gatekeepers who are more rich than any landlord, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because they extract more rent they extract 30 or 40% of a revenue dollar, whereas a great retail store rent is maybe 10% of the sales. And so the way to actually bring a brand to scale now is, in my opinion, to have a digital storefront where you tell the story of your brand and where you serve a lot of customers. But the key thing is to amplify that in a major way with wholesale partnerships, 
with great retailers like Walmart. And that equation is what actually gets you out of having to spend money on digital marketing, which in my opinion, doesn't work. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone on planet Earth who's happy with their digital marketing spend or strategy or team or vendor. So I think that's key. And then I think company-owned retail, I actually would emphasize that less early because it's hard to get right. It's people-intensive. There still are leases. You know, at Bonobos, we diluted ourselves into thinking it was like a brilliant channel because we didn't have inventory in the stores. That's true. Like we had a cool showroom model, but we still had to hire five people per store. We still had to sign 60 leases. It's very intensive compared to a wholesale partnership that can be managed by a team of three or four people. At Monica and Andy, the reason why we're profitable is those people are the same people that manage our direct consumer business. And now the wholesale part is going to probably two or three X our top line revenue over the next two years. So that's a pretty good trade. Do you think that in that vein, not that e-commerce has topped, is it slowing down? Is retail gaining momentum? Like, How do you think about it if you were to say one's gaining momentum, one's not, when you just said, I don't know one person that's happy with their digital ad spend, which is obviously a huge part of building an e-com business? I think e-commerce as a thing, as a way to transact, as a percent to total, the penetration will continue to deepen. Okay. I think we need to pay more respect to legacy retailers that have figured out their e-commerce and that are now playing offense with it. And I got to see that happen at Walmart and be a part of it from the inside, which was amazing, was super special to see what Mark Laurie did to see the acquisition of Flipkart, to see them go from being behind Amazon to playing offense with like grocery pickup, for example. Fresh food and frozen food is one of the things Amazon is never going to get right because they don't have enough locations and it's not worth it economically to build out what Walmart has, which is 4,000 super centers. So who's going to win in food and e-commerce in the US? Is it going to be a digital upstart? Is it going to be a digital behemoth, which is Amazon? I think it's going to be the nation's largest grocer, which has 4,000 points of sale, which is Walmart. So we need to, I think, pay more respect to legacy retailers that are figuring out digital. And then where it comes to brands, great brands have figured out how to do great things in digital. Lululemon's direct business is a monster. Nike was nowhere on digital 15 years ago. I know people that have come from Bonobos that are now running e-com over there, and that penetration is deepening and deepening. But they have to dance their way out of certain wholesale accounts to do that. They have to figure out, okay, we're going to keep Dick's Sporting Goods, but we're going to walk away from these other 500 you know, accounts. And then for the little corner of the ecosystem that we pioneered at Bonobos, which is the pure play digital, I think barely anyone is going to make that work without having a brick and mortar strategy. Like... I don't know a single D2C entrepreneur now who doesn't talk about wholesale and is trying to figure out how to get into Target or get into Walmart or whatever. Whereas a decade ago, we were all above that. We were digital. We were playing offense. We were the people that were smarter than those folks. And it turns out that that wasn't true. We weren't. And for me at Bonobos, the aha was Nordstrom. They were our key wholesale partner. And I treated it as something to be really afraid of. And then we built a $50 million business. We became the number one Chino at Nordstrom. And we learned that they're actually as good or better at taking care of customers than we are. And that was kind of 
So for me, that was I was five years in 2012 when I realized that. And now I think everyone who's building digital brands understands that. I'm, I'm an investor in about 30. And every investor update I get is, hey, we're a makeup brand and we just launched at Sephora. Hey, we're a, a food brand and we're launching at Whole Foods. Everyone's trying and that it just makes sense because it's an efficient market and people find stuff out and then chase that. And that's the new ambition of entrepreneurs is building Omni brands. Okay. So let's go to 2017. You decided to sell. Were you approached to sell? How did you get to the decision of selling? And then I want to go a little deeper to where you just were. What's Walmart going to win at and what's Amazon going to win at from your perspective today? But let's start real quick with the sale. Was that something that you led or were you approached or why Walmart? How did this whole thing come to be? We ran a process. I was a decade in. I had been through hell and back with the mental health stuff the previous year. And we had one inside investor who were a retail family. And they said, we will give you $15 million to take this company to profitability. And let's keep it independent. Maybe we take it public. Maybe we don't. And then I had venture capitalists who'd been invested. That investor, by the way, had invested in 2014. So they were earlier in the journey. Then we had venture capitalists who had invested in 2010, who it was kind of dawning on them that the company was going to be worth a couple hundred million dollars, you know, not two billion or five billion. And I had one conversation with one of them where I said, you know, what would you want? And he was like, look, I'm at a point now where if you wanted to sell it, you know, that would work for me. And I said, what's your price? Like, what, you know, what's the minimum? And he was like, 275. <laughs> so that became my bogey. And then this is the funniest thing, but a close friend of mine from college was at a wedding in LA. And he was talking to one of my angel investors, and he had invested that angel investor a decade earlier. And my friend played back to me that that angel investor said, yeah, I get an Andy's investor updates. Things are always going well, but we've been in this for a decade and we haven't heard anything about getting our money back. And that like, oh, that like, that hurt. Because I thought, this is capitalism. Like at some point, people want their equity investment back. And I took stock of where I was in my life. I was getting married. I'd been at it for, you know, 10 years. And I thought, I'd be ready. I'd be ready to sell. And I also thought I'm able to keep going. So we ran a process that was like three possibilities. Take the inside money, 15 million and keep going. Sell the company outright to private equity or a strategic or a larger corporation. Or do this like thread the needle transaction where we sell about 40% of the company, enable the people who want out to get out, enable people like myself on the management team to get some liquidity and then to roll some in the deal and keep going. And those were the three options. And actually, the middle option is the one that we picked. We found a great investor group that does consumer brands all day long. They're private equity, but they're willing to buy minority positions, which is super rare. There's like four people on planet Earth that'll do that. So we found one of the four. We had a term sheet, sat down for dinner, more or less was like, let's do this. And then we spent like weeks negotiating some pretty specific stuff, which we could get into another day. And during that time period, I met Mark Lurie and he was like, let's do this. Let's take the Bonobos model of digital brand building. Let's figure out how to bring that into the 
into the ethos of Walmart. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I spent time with Mark, really loved him. And then I met Doug, Doug, the CEO of Walmart. We sat down for dinner in New York City. And I was like, wow, I would be lucky to be at this table with these two guys. And so that was, funnily enough, it was the last option, but it was the one that we went with in the end. And their proposal to you besides the money was was what? We're going to buy you. We're going to bring you in. You said, make them part of the ethos. In 2017, what did that look like? So it ended up being my pitch to them because I went from like skeptical of the idea to really falling in love with the idea, idea of working with Mark and Doug. And then I developed like a pitch video on here's what we think we can do. And the pitch was that the future of commerce will look like the history of video, which is the large platforms that previously streamed or distributed other people's content realized that they had to become studios generating their own content. And I went back and looked at Netflix. When Netflix launched House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, their stock price actually tanked. Because the analyst's concern was, what are they trying to do? Become HBO? Yeah. And now we've seen that streaming other people's content is a race to the bottom. And what it's led to is everyone realizing we need to stream our own content. And so Netflix and Hulu have become studios. And the studios have decided to build their own streaming platforms, Disney+. Plus. I'm now a Paramount Plus subscriber. Who knew? But that's where I have to go to watch you know, Yellowstone and the various prequels that it is spawning. And even now Tulsa King with Sylvester Stallone, which is hilarious. (laughs) So my pitch was, I think that the future of e-commerce looks like the history of video. And let me come in with my team and figure out how to do that. And I would say, Chris, in all honesty, I failed. I was not able to operate in a large company environment and be effective. I was the classic entrepreneur who comes in and talks too much. Yeah. And I wasn't able to figure out how to like shrink down and become like a great corporate executive. Yeah. And so what we succeeded at doing was building an incubator to create new brands, something that Target has been good at for a while. And we launched a mattress brand called Allswell, which is super cool. And I'm proud of that. We launched a fashion brand called Free Assembly. I saw my niece wearing one of their jackets yesterday. I was like, we did okay <laughs> with this Free Assembly thing. It's really cool. They brought in a famous designer named Brandon Maxwell, who now leads that. But the strategy of like, let's go buy other brands like Bonobos and bring that in, I wasn't successful at that, which was a bummer. And part of that was my own incompetence. And part of that was also observing that big companies can only integrate so many acquisitions successfully. Right. Like it's just hard. Every deal is just as much work and is a new culture. And so I think Walmart realized we need to be make chess moves with acquisitions, do big ones like Jet and Flipkart, not buy 30 brands because this Andy Dunn guy thinks that's a good idea. (laughs) All right, let's bring home this discussion on Walmart versus Amazon. Yeah. And I'll take a Mark Lore approach to this. I'm not going to tell you how to answer it. I'm just going to say Walmart versus Amazon. What comes to mind from a business perspective on what's Walmart going to win at, what's Amazon going to win at, and what are your kind of critiques of each model? It's funny, after the deal was announced that Walmart was acquired by Bonobos, I was getting my hair cut. And I was with my barber on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village, who I'd known for a decade. He came to my wedding. That's how close we got. Just a great guy. And he's from Montenegro. And I didn't know that he followed 
the news at all, let alone about bonobos or me. So we're mid haircut and he goes, Andy, now you are marching with the elephant. (laughs) (laughs) But this guy, this guy in Seattle, he is an octopus. (laughs) Um, And I thought, when a book comes out about Amazon versus Walmart, it should be called The Elephant and the Octopus. And then one day I was in a meeting at Walmart and we were talking about Amazon and talking about how it's not one business, it's eight. And I was like, that octopus thing was right. It's commerce. It's advertising. It's the most profitable, which is Amazon Web Services. It's third-party fulfillment. It's, you know, on and on and on. There's eight businesses in there. I think the new CEO is going to cleave a few of those. But it's not just a retailer. It is a provider of cloud computing that also does retail. And that means that it has operating profit that it can use to fund retail at almost a loss, which means that they can be the most price competitive. And so what I saw happen while I was at Walmart is Walmart realized they were never going to out-assort Amazon. But what they could do is leverage the 4,000 super centers that they have, which are enormously profitable and powerful businesses, and leverage that unfair advantage to do things that Amazon couldn't. And I think grocery delivery was massive. And that comes off the realization, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is fresh and frozen food. It's just very hard to do with a pure e-com fulfillment driven play. And then I think the other one, which Walmart talks about a lot now is healthcare, right? Which is like, if you have 4,000 locations, you can just do stuff with healthcare. And of course, Amazon is smart, right? So what has Amazon done? They bought Whole Foods and One Medical because they've realized that they need brick and mortar to compete in those arenas. And so if I had to guess, I think Walmart will continue to own food and be the leading uh, grocer in the country. I think Amazon, uh, Walmart is in a position to win in healthcare. I think Walmart is in a position to win in financial services, right? It's an opportunity to have, you know, a financial services impact where there's an in-person element. And then when I think it comes to like pure play assortment, Amazon's always going to have more. They're just going to have more SKUs in the long tail. Walmart's going to be able to match them, I think, at the head of the tail, selling Tide. But in the long tail, you know, Amazon's marketplace is going to be formidable. And then do I expect Walmart is going to invent a technology play like Amazon Web Services? No. I don't think so. And then we could talk about countries too, where I think like Walmart is incredible in Mexico, is has a chance to win in India because they bought the equivalent of the Amazon in India, which is Flipkart. But we'll if we go geography by geography, we'll go down the rabbit hole. But the short story is that Walmart has proved itself to be a formidable competitor. And part of that is Sun Tzu, the art of war. Like you've got to lean into where you're different rather than try to be better at the thing that you're already losing at. That's a perfect way to bring this home. Andy, this was awesome. We went to a place I didn't think we'd go to, but this was one of my favorite conversations. I really appreciate it. Chris, it was an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to meeting you in person one day and not doing all the stuff that we used to do in college. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you'd prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.